The following message is a teaching by Dr. Jason DeRoshi, Associate Professor of Old Testament at Bethlehem College and Seminary in Minneapolis, Minnesota. More information about Jason can be found at deroshi-meyer.org. Good morning. Please open your Bibles to the third book. <laughs> Luke, yeah. <laughs> Yeah, that was, that was good. That was really good. The third book in Jesus' Bible, Can We Find Anything Beneficial in Leviticus? Thank you, Ken. We are in a journey through Jesus' Bible, a gospel-centered glance at the Old Testament. And today, the gospel is right in our faces. Leviticus. Our book opens, the Lord called Moses and spoke to him from the tent of meeting. The Lord called Moses and spoke to him. Rather than his fiery, all-consuming presence reaching down and Engulfing him in flames as a sinner, the Lord called Moses and spoke to him. Those words come right after these words. The cloud covered the tent of meeting and the glory of Yahweh filled the tabernacle. The glory of God manifests itself in Israel, right in the midst of of Israel. God had said, I'm not going to go with you, Moses, because you're a stubborn people. And if my holy presence were to stick around with you, it would consume you. Moses had prayed, Lord, let your goodness pass by me. Let me see your glory. Yahweh, Yahweh, gracious and compassionate slow to anger and abounding in steadfast love and faithfulness, forgiving sin, forgiving sin, and not counting iniquity unto a thousand generations. God, God, you've got to go with us. You must go with us because we will have no hope unless that kind of a God who is gracious and compassionate, slow to anger and abounding in steadfast love, unless that kind of love, God, stays near us, please come with this stubborn, stiff-necked people. So God did. His presence came down in fire right over the Holy of Holies, right in the middle of Israel's camp. Leviticus is about this holy God. It's about living rather than dying in the light of his holy presence. How can I live and not die when the fires of God come? They're coming upon the world. We call it hell. When the glory presence of God will, will all of a sudden, that, that which is filling inside of people, this, this fire of God, this zeal for His holiness, this zeal against sin, it will consume 
sinners unless it's been poured out on the substitute? How do we live in, in the light of Yahweh's holy presence? So today we're going to look at fuel for living in the light. Next week, the nature of living in the light. That's kind of the two parts of the book. And I call it fuel because it's been that for me and I think it's designed intentionally to help clarify how can I beat sin in my life. This whole book, beginning in chapter 11, it's where we hear it first, be holy. You be holy. Look more like God. Take him seriously. May other people see your life. May they see that you're distinct because your God is distinct. Be holy. So that's one commandment. Then the other commandment, then the other statement that God says is simply, I am Yahweh who sanctifies you. Who makes you holy? Be holy. I'm the one who does it. And I'm wondering how do we get those two together? My fulfilling a commandment and God fulfilling a promise. What's the relationship? Because in my own life, I see a very slow process of this sanctification. Pastor John was once asked, is there anything that causes you to doubt the sovereignty of God ever? He was asked that right after the bridge collapse. And right in the midst of an intense trying time in his own family. And his response was immediate. And it had nothing to do with either natural or moral evil outside of himself. He said, the biggest thing that causes me to question the sovereignty of God is the slowness by which I am becoming holy. Is he really there? God, am I really yours because I'm not pursuing you the way that I should be? Are you really passionate about your glory? Then become passionate in me. Make me more passionate for what you're most passionate about. Why is it taking so long? What is there to stoke the, kind, to stoke the fires of holiness in our own soul? What means is there? What's the bridge between I am the God who sanctifies you, be holy? How, how does that work? To that end, let's pray. Father, we're in a book that you have breathed out that we might inhale. Too quickly, our breaths are quite rapid in this book. We get through it fast, confident that it's all picture and the real is come. I pray as we take this week and next to slow down a little bit. I pray that you would Fill us more with your presence, a sanctifying presence. Give us greater clarity how to enjoy that presence more often. A sin-killing, life-sustaining presence. Take us there today, we pray. And in the process, make much of Jesus. In his name we ask. Amen. The means for drawing near to God. Chapters 1 through 10 are about fuel. 
What is the fuel for nurturing holiness, helping us look more like God? What's, what fuel is there? And it starts with seven on the edge of your seat, thrilling chapters detailing Israel's sacrificial system. Oh boy. Why? Seven chapters. Because there was a purpose. The purpose is that this fire of God that sat in the middle of Israel would somehow nurture life in them rather than bringing death. The goal was relationship with God, an encounter with God. Where he's delighting in me, where I'm delighting in him rather than running from him and his anger coming out upon my soul. The problem. The problem is this, that there are harmful consequences when a sinner doesn't take seriously a holy God. Harmful consequences with respect to Israel's land, harmful consequences with respect to the tabernacle itself. Let's just read these texts. Leviticus 15.31, Thus you shall keep the people of Israel separate from their uncleanness. Israel was going to become unclean. We're going to see next week there's two different kinds of uncleanness. There's tolerated and prohibited. Prohibited is what we usually think of as sin. Then there's a whole range of tolerated uncleanness. A monthly menstrual cycle is tolerated uncleanness. Sexual intercourse is tolerated uncleanness. Caring for the dead is tolerated uncleanness, but it still demands cleansing. And in those instances, cleansing was not sacrifice. It was only washing. But if for some reason you failed to align with the symbolic rituals that would bring cleansing to the tolerated uncleanness, it would result in necessitating in sacrifice. You'd have to have sacrifice because the tolerated would have all of a sudden become prohibited because you failed to abide by the principles for tolerated uncleanness. Then there's the whole realm of prohibited uncleanness like adultery and stealing and lying. Anything that could pollute my soul, all that had to be dealt with through sacrifice. The priests had the responsibility to call people to, when when it says keep the people separate from their uncleanness, what it meant was make sure it gets addressed as soon as possible. Because if it's allowed to sit there, contamination is going to set in, which is going to result in pollution. And God is holy. And pollution was not permissible. It would be like an infection getting into your soul. What does it do? It stirs up your stomach and you get this flu bug in there and you begin to feel uneasy inside and your body is going to act in a way that wants to get it out of there, whether up or down. The holy God will address uncleanness. You must deal with it lest you die. By defiling my tabernacle that is in their midst. Or Leviticus 18, 
Don't make yourself unclean by any of these things, for by all these things the nations I'm driving out before you have become unclean, and the land became unclean, so that I punished its iniquity, and the land vomited out its inhabitants. The land is like a body and it's becoming infected through uncleanness. And at some point, it's going to get it out of there. And you might be just part of that vomit. Isn't a lot of this, you know, they, they didn't care about these things. They didn't, you know, they lived in their filth. That's like other countries where you go through and there's a sewer running through the center of the street. You raise the question of natural law. By that, he's, uh, he simply means principles that God has set into the heart of every man that are right versus things that everyone deep down inside knows are wrong. And what is God judging all these nations for? There's a little more going on than just um, a law of um, action and consequence because the judgment that God's bringing on the nations is a moral issue. They, too, have offended the holiness of God who is not only the Lord of Israel, he's the Lord of the world. And so God is taking the world's sin seriously and he's calling Israel not to live like them. But the judgment that he's brought on, that he's, that he's about to bring on Canaan is a picture of the judgment that he will bring on all the world that is not identified with the substitute. Um, so because God is God, in the realm of natural, what's naturally going to happen because he's God, he must be passionate for his own glory, which means he must be zealous against sin. He has to be. Sin is not taking God seriously, not being passionate for what he is by nature most passionate about, his own renown. And when we don't align with that passion, it's defined as sin and so naturally, necessarily, God must take it seriously. So keep these statutes and the rules and do none of these abominations, either the native or the stranger who sojourns among you, lest the land vomit you out when you make it unclean as it vomited out the nation that, is, that was before you. So here's the means. You've got a sinful people and a holy God and the means for building this bridge of relationship, the Bible calls atonement. We're in Leviticus chapter 1. The Lord God called Moses and spoke to him from the tent of meeting, saying, Speak to all the people of Israel and say, When any of you brings an offering to the Lord, you shall bring your offering of livestock from the herd and from the flock. If his offering is a burnt offering, so that's the first type of sacrifice that's going to be addressed. If it's a burnt offering from the herd, he shall offer a male without blemish. He shall bring it to the entrance of the tent of meeting that he may be accepted by the Lord. That's the goal, to move from sinner to accepted. 
He shall lay his hands on the head of the burnt offering. So you have this animal without blemish. It's not going to die on its own. He lays his hand on the head of the offering, thus identifying himself with this beast, and then the beast is the one that's going to be offered. And it shall be accepted to him to make atonement for him. So Leviticus is answering how it is that God will remain in the camp of Israel and yet not annihilate all of them, even though they're a stubborn, stiff-necked people. This is the provision to make it possible God said, I'm not going with you because if I do, you'll all, you'll all die. Moses says, you must go with us because you're gracious and compassionate, slow to anger and abounding in steadfast love and faithfulness, forgiving sin. And now God's unpacking how he can justly relate to his sinful people, how he can justly forgive the sin. Bring the lamb, it will stand in your place. Here's the five sacrifices. And you've got them listed for you. I'm going to give a single word that helps you understand their role. Before the tabernacle, when God made his presence physically there, physically manifest in the midst of Israel, there were only three kinds of sacrifices. The burnt offering, the peace offering, and the grain offering. So in the time of Abraham, the burnt offering was the only offering to deal with sin. It was the only atonement offering. But now, from Mount Sinai forward, it takes on a little bit of a different role. Devotion. Devotion. So here's what I say. It's an optional act of worship that atoned for sins in general, accompanied other offerings, and expressed one's commitment to God. I'm here for you. I love you. All of me is yours. And that's why this offering would be brought, and it's the only offering that is fully consumed by God. No one else gets to eat the offering. God alone does. And it's a symbol of all I am is yours. All of me is yours. No parts left over. Full devotion. Number two, the grain offering. This is the offering of thanksgiving. The Lord has, in the midst of your suffering, giving you sustained grace to keep trusting in Him, and you want to say, thanks be to God that He's proven Himself worth my trust. The Lord gives you a new job, and you want to, Just say to him tangibly, thanks be to God. You bring a grain offering. Now, you have to understand that at the tabernacle, God has, all the rest of Israel has an inheritance. They get their own plot of land, but not the priests. Everybody that's part of the tribe of Levi has been set apart, and God says, you don't get your own inheritance. So how do they live? They live because people are bringing their offerings to the tabernacle. The burnt offering, that's fully consumed. But the grain offering becomes the bread that the priests get to eat every day. It becomes their provision. So... It's an optional act of worship that expressed devotion to God and regularly accompanied other offerings. 
and the priests get to keep that grain. But it's not an offering to the priests. It's an offering to God. The priests have the privilege of being stewards in the house of God. They are the servants of the great king. People bring the king his due, and the king provides a way for his servants to eat at his table. They get bread. Then we come to the peace offering. This is the nearest offering to a Minnesotan potluck. But again, you're bringing your offering to the Lord. Part of it is tithe. And this is an optional act of worship that celebrated the offerer's fellowship with the Lord and was given in the context of thanksgiving. Vows and general praise. I give you praise for what you've done. And it's about fellowship. And because of that, what does God do? You've brought your offering to the great king, and now he's actually going to let you eat. Not just the priests, not just his servants, but you get to stick around at the tabernacle and enjoy a feast with your brothers and sisters in the Lord. In the Lord. That's the only way it's possible. Rather than receiving his wrath on the other side of the substitutionary sacrifice, you enjoy the benefit of it immediately. You're not annihilated by the king. Annihilated very generally, I say that. You're not killed physically because I believe in an eternal hell. You are not consumed by him. Rather, you get to partake in his banqueting feast. You get to enjoy it. And everybody's brought in their goods The priests get their portion, and then you get to enjoy boiled dinner. The only grilled meals of Israel were the Passover. All these offerings were not grilled. The fat would be burned as a pleasing aroma to the Lord, and then they would take the meat and they would boil it. And that's what you would enjoy, a boiled meal, and then anything else that you brought to the mix for your feast. And you would celebrate there, pouring out your extras to the poor, including the Levite, the sojourner, and you'd be celebrating in the context of the great king at his banqueting table. He's just laid it out there before you. You don't deserve it, but he makes it possible for you to enjoy fellowship with him in his presence, actually eating. Now we come to the sin offerings. The ESV translates it as sin offering. Others prefer purification. You've been contaminated and you need to get yourself right. This was about atonement for contamination of holy objects, tabernacle, priest, holy things that need to be addressed. Um, Contamination means that unclean has rubbed shoulders with the holy. And holiness, uh, uncleanness is, um, uh, what's the word? It's catchy. Uh, It's contagious. 
Uncleanness is contagious. And so when something gets polluted, you've got to work through the process of re-holifying it, sanctifying it, consecrating it. And the sin offering addressed that issue. There's a guilt that's been felt. Felt is a key element. Let's just look at chapter 4 for a second. For example, chapter 4, verse 27, if any one of the common people sins in error in doing any one of the things that by the Lord's commandment ought not to be done, and he realizes his guilt... All of this sacrificial system is rendered useless if you don't have sorrow over your sin. If it's just an outward act, it's a big zero in God's book. Because he's not looking through the sacrifice to determine whether he's going to love you. Let me me qualify that. That's ultimately what's happening. But before he can do that, he has to look through our heart to see if he'll accept the sacrifice. Am I mournful? Am I broken? Do I feel guilt? And if you don't, all the sacrifices are as filthy rags in God's sight. So this is atonement for contamination of God's holy places and objects. Its focus is purification, consecration of individuals, or community, after you failed to, or you did something that you weren't supposed to do, or you failed to do something that you were supposed to do. Finally, the guilt or reparation offering. You hear the word repair in there, because the guilt offering specifically addresses, one, when you have not simply contaminated something, but where you've desecrated something. And by that I mean, not simply has the unclean touched the unclean, sorry, the unclean touched the holy, but now you're treating consciously that which is holy as if it were not. That's to desecrate it. And strikingly, part of the reparation offering is if you have sinned against another person. It's, this is a very high view of, the, of humanity that's linked up with the reparation offering because it's at the core of the reparation offering is that every man is created in the image of God and if you treat that which God has made lightly, it's a direct affront against God. So I come home to my children. They rush me downstairs and they have been working all afternoon on a city. It's a mixture of Legos and Lincoln Logs, and it's expanding across the living room floor. They've got bridges and roads, a wall around a castle. Dad, come and see what we did. And I go downstairs, and I look at this thing, and I start analyzing it. Your bridge right here, there's a one-eighth inch gap Between that block and that block, it's going to blow out a tire if you run a car over it. Your garage right here, your Fisher-Price people, just look. When they're sitting in the car and they go in, their heads are going to hit it. You're going to kill them, a whole bunch of them. Your Lincoln Log house, you've done nothing 
to secure it from flame. It's going to burn quick. What, what were you guys thinking today? This is ridiculous. And the kids look at me, not having received what they had hoped. Rather than receiving a delight from their father, what they get is condemnation. And I see those tears beginning to well up in their eyes, and I say, Guys, guys, no, don't, don't, please, just come here. There's nothing wrong with you. I just don't like what you've made. And it doesn't work that way. Because when I look at my wife and I snap at her, how I treat her is a direct reflection of my view of God. How I treat the creation is a direct reflection of how I view the Creator. And God takes offense. So repair has to be made. Repair that can only happen by a substitute receiving the wrath. And not only the wrath going on a substitute, in this instance there has to be reparation, which means giving back what's been hurt, stolen. So if you stole a TV, you've got to give the TV back, but then you've got to add 20%. That's a reparation offering. If you take a loaf of bread, you give a loaf and a fifth. If you kill an animal, you have to give back a new oxen and then add a goat. That's how the reparation offering works. So that you're, you feel it. And in that means, it, it, it proves that indeed you're broken and you feel, you feel the weightiness of God's holiness and the breach is fixed. God truly lets the breach be fixed. And all of a sudden you're accepted. Chapter 7, 37. So this is the law of the burnt offering and the grain offering, the sin offering and the guilt offering, the ordinary of the ordination offering and of the peace officer offering, which the Lord commanded Moses on Mount Sinai, on that day he commanded the people of Israel to bring their offerings to the Lord in the wilderness of Sinai. Now my dear brother Jason preached a very short time today. And I feel it at this moment. Within the book of Leviticus, it's a very strange ordering Exodus, Genesis, Exodus, they're just filled with stories. Numbers, it's dominated by a story. Leviticus only has three chapters of story and all the rest are what we usually think of as legislation, instruction. So we've got seven chapters of here are the uh, sacrifices, three small chapters of story, And then the rest of the book detailing the nature of the holy life. And so I ask myself, why did Moses put the story where he did? And how is the story supposed to color my understanding of all the instructions? And it's in this story that I think we get a paradigm... Is that a helpful word? A model 
They're going to walk through a story of the very first sacrifice that was ever offered at the tabernacle. But God's going to say a number of things here. And in unpacking the story, I think he's giving a model for how we were to under, how Israel, first of all, was to understand the place of sacrifice in their relationship with God and the role that it would play in fueling their holy life. Israel has to be asking themselves, is it really that simple? I mean, I offer this beast and then I get to enjoy the holy God and God unpacks the significance, the the weightiness of this moment. And he's going to do it through a story of two deaths, two fiery encounters one of which fuels sanctification and the other of which fuels destruction. And he's going to contrast these two deaths in order to give us clarity about what it means to approach God through a substitutionary sacrifice. And long term, it's going to even give us a model for understanding how it is that we battle our sin. So I, th- I think I have to say we're going to cover that next week. I think I have to do that right now. Bummer. <laughs> Let me pray. Your question? Yeah. So, just for those who couldn't hear, um, the, the role of sacrifice to not only prevent disease as a sickness, but dis-ease in my soul. That, that the Lord is making a provision. And strikingly, it's just going to be external. Because Israel's going to end up... Um, when we get to Jeremiah, we're going to see... They, the new covenant is designed to answer a problem in the old, but the problem was not that God hadn't given them the structure by which their sins could be forgiven, it's that they didn't experience it because their hearts were hard. Their hearts were hard. And they never moved into the lasting context of ease in their relationship with the Lord. Yeah, I think we need to stop. Let's pray. Father, I thank you that you do all things well. I thank you that already we can anticipate that through Christ you let us eat at your banqueting table justly. I pray that you would make us a people who quickly who quickly remember our neediness and don't assume on grace, but who go through the process remembering our sinfulness, remembering our need for a substitute, remembering your own zeal for holiness 
in your zeal against sin. Work in us, O Lord, what is pleasing to you. Through the blood of Christ we pray. Amen. Thank you for listening to this message from the ministry of Dr. Jason DeRoshi, Associate Professor of Old Testament at Bethlehem College and Seminary in Minneapolis, Minnesota. Feel free to make copies of this message to give to others, but please do not charge for these copies or alter their content in any way without written permission from Jason DeRoshi. For more information on Bethlehem College and Seminary, we invite you to visit online at bcsmn.org. For more information on Dr. DeRoshi, visit online at deroshi-meyer.org. Proclaiming the Kingdom and treasuring a God who rules, saves, and satisfies through covenant for His glory in Christ.